the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest, Steve Seckler. We play Deep Cuts with Steve Seckler. And then, Jared lays out his ideal vision of modern business attire. But first, it's time to stand up and cheer, party people. It's your host, Jared Correa. Welcome back, friends, Romans, countrymen. Lend me your rears. You're in for another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast. This one's going to knock your socks off. And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I still can't figure out how to plug in my cordless drill. Honestly, it's really annoying. I'm your host, Jared Correa. You're stuck with me because Eric Morcom and Ernie Wise were busy goofing on the Beatles anthology. Now that's a deep cut. I'm the COO of... Gideon Software Inc. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. Schedule a demo to check out our new e-signature tool at GideonLegal.com. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at RedCaveLegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Steve Seckler of Seckler Attorney Coaching, where we'll talk about how to avoid your worst lawyerly instincts, let's talk a little bit about logos. So I talked about logos before on the podcast, but like always in connection with something else like website development or marketing, I want to give logos their due. So you may not know this, but I'm obsessed with logos, especially sports logos. My son was working on a school project the other day, and I told him, like, I used to sit in school and, like, doodle sports logos. And I could still do a lot of them. Now, most of those are from the 80s, but I'm old. When I was a kid, my dad opened a sports store, and he had all these hats everywhere, like massive racks of hats and uniforms. And I loved it because I got to see all these different logos, and I got to swipe a few hats for myself. It was great. Now, to my wife's tremendous chagrin. I have a large stand with about 125 baseball hats in it in my mudroom. Some of these are like really old from like the 1920s. Some of these are from like the Negro Leagues and the Federal Leagues. Some of these are more modern, but I'm into logos, as you can see. And the reason I think this is interesting is as much as I love baseball Football, basketball, hockey, sports logos. I could talk about that all day. Most law firm logos are just shit. They're terrible. So here's how law firm logos work. Because as a law firm, you're required to find the five or six people you know with the hardest to pronounce last names in the world to join in a business and then name your business after those people's last names. Usually the logo has the initials of the last names of the partner the JBL Law Group, the DIV Law Center, whatever. Initials, really creative shit there, guys. Come on. What else do you see in law firm logos? Oh, just uh, Doric columns, court steps, maybe a person walking on those court steps, probably a lawyer, scales of justice, lady justice, books. Don't let me forget books. Oh, and bookcases. Like, really stuff that is going to resonate with a modern client who's going to be like, yeah, like, get me to this dude who reads books and doesn't search for stuff online. And then the color palette is interesting as well. Right out of Bob Ross, right? Blue, white, and gray. That's it. So how do you fix that? Now, 
One of the great things that happened post-pandemic, and I've bitched about this on the podcast before, is almost every jurisdiction in the United States is now allowing lawyers to use brand names. And that was decidedly not the case before. So what's a brand name? Burger King, Fox Television, Netflix, Amazon. Um, Lawyers can now use those in pretty much every jurisdiction. So that's a little bit different because now, if you couldn't do that before, you can tie the name of your law firm to some kind of concept, which can be whimsical. You don't have to be the Johnson Law Firm anymore or use your initials any longer. You could be Hummingbird Law or some crazy shit like that. So start there. Think about different concepts. Make it unique, authentic, interesting. Do something different, anything different. What else could you do? I don't know. Pick different colors. I've looked at law firm logos in the last week or so with some clients I've been working with that feature dark green burnt orange, copper. Now those are some fucking colors, let me tell you. If you want some interesting logo design concepts to potentially breathe some life into your own logo, you want to have like three things when it comes to a logo. You want to have the logo itself, which is the image. You want to have a word mark, which is the business name spelt out in certain script and color. And then you want to have the combination of those two things, the logo and word mark. And by the way, You also want to have a different version of your logo for all the channels that logo is going to be used in, your website, social media, et cetera, et cetera. Anybody who's good at logo design is going to do that stuff for you. So separating yourself, thinking of experimental concepts, that's where it's at. And so, as I said before, like, take a look at some of those really cool baseball logos out there. One of my favorite baseball teams in terms of logo design is the Arizona Diamondbacks. And they're a really interesting use case because they've got a hat with an A on it for Arizona which looks like a snake biting down on something that's got fangs and everything. And then it's got a really unique Southwestern design. And then they had this other hat, which had the D for Diamondbacks on it, which was like a curled up rattlesnake biting. Really cool logo concept. And then they also had the snake biting a baseball. Like this is my jam in case you didn't notice. So you could think of creative ways to design your business logo by now Don't fall down in surprise here, but potentially looking at other businesses that aren't law firms. I had a friend of mine back in the day who had a non-compete law firm, and he was like, all these lawyer websites suck. I need to figure out a new way to build a website. So he looked at all kinds of different businesses, and he was like, architecture firms, they have really good websites. That's the way to go. I'm going to build my law firm website like an architecture firm website. And it was super unique. People would always comment on it. And it was one of the factors that caused people to choose him as a lawyer. So get inspired. I'll share my hat collection with you. Just give me a call. So I said, logistics, right? This is easy to do when you start a law firm, right? Because you're working with unmolded clay. You can do whatever you want. But you can also revise your brand. Like do a grand reopening. Tell people you got a new logo. Tell people you launched a new website with a totally different color scheme. All of it's good. And it'll get you noticed too. Even if you've been in practice for a decade or two, your business is never too old to start something new in terms of branding. And it might give you the charge you need. So a website designer, digital marketing agency would be able to do a logo design for you. They may be able to provide you contractors or they may do it as part of something else they're building for you, like a website or an SEO campaign. Um, If you're not doing anything like that, where you could find somebody to build a logo for you in conjunction with this other project, uh, you could hire a contractor directly. Um, You can find people like that on Fiverr, Upwork, Thumbtack, uh, services like that. 
But I tell you, like, start by doing it yourself. Whenever I start a new business, because I'm like a logo person, probably figured that out by now, I'll always design the logo on a napkin for whatever reason. Like, I'm always, I always seem to be at like a lunch or dinner, and I'm like, eh, I'm going to put together a logo for a new business. I've done that both times I've started businesses. I'd probably do it if I started a business again. It's just fun to like mess around with concepts. I take that, I draw it on a piece of paper like I did when I was a kid. I hand it off to more talented people and they make it sing. So mess around with some concepts, let your freak flag fly, and get yourself a new logo that doesn't suck. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Okay, everybody, let's get back to it. We've got the meat in the middle of this legal podcasting sandwich. Today's meat is kangaroo, because why not? And yeah, it's true, people actually eat kangaroo, which is kind of fucked, because I don't know how you get the meat. I feel like a kangaroo would just kick the shit out of me, honestly. But here we are on another show. Let's talk to our guest. That's what you're here for, right? So we have today, making his third appearance on the Legal Toolkit podcast, which I think may be a record, it's Steve Seckler the president of Seckler Attorney Coaching. Steve, how are you? I am doing great, Jared, and I am honored to be here for the third time. And you were on my podcast twice, and so now I've got to reciprocate. That's all right. No pressure. I will note, however, that this is the first time you're going to be, I don't want to use the term subjected to, but you'll be appearing on the Rump Roast. So that'll be fun also. I'm a little nervous. (laughs) That's all right. It's an initiation thing. Everybody's going to go through it. Okay. Before we get to that, I want to say congratulations because your son's in law school. And I guess like, is that worthy of congratulations? Or as a lawyer yourself who's transitioned out, is that like joyful for you? Dreadful? A combination of both? (laughs) Well, my attitude about it is I just want my kids to do something that they feel good about. I did not give my son a lot of career advice. The career advice that he took from me was work as a paralegal first, which Mm. he did. The second piece of advice he took from me was make sure you go to a law school that gives you a lot of money. He is doing that. And (laughs) if he's happy with what he's doing, I'm happy. That's a smart way to play it though, honestly. Avoiding the student debt's a good idea. So yeah, I guess congratulations is in order. Seems like you're both happy about that. So you wrote this article recently. I think for, correct me if I'm wrong, GP Solo Magazine from the American Bar Association. Is that right? Or 
technically it's GP Solo e-report, so it's the online edition. Right, okay. And in that you were talking about how lawyers should stop thinking like lawyers like all the time, especially in terms of business management, which obviously I think is true because as we both consult with law firms, that gets in the way of doing things with respect to business management. So broadly speaking, can you tell me what that means? And then we'll kind of dive into the different pieces of what you wrote. Sure. I just want to give credit to Dr. Larry Richards, who is a PhD who started his career as a lawyer in the 1980s. He decided that wasn't a good fit for him. And since that time, he's done more research on lawyer personalities than any other human on the planet. And what he has realized is that lawyers really are different. We do have different qualities, different characteristics. And many of those characteristics make us really good at giving advice to our clients, but they can get in the way when we're trying to build our practice, when we're trying to advance our careers, or when we're trying to manage or lead other lawyers. Right. I think that is largely true. And in this article, you listed what, like seven different things, but there's a whole host of other items that you could hit at some point in the future. It's a long list. I mean, everything is basically sort of in general, because not every lawyer has every one of these qualities, but there are certain characteristics that are more common and much more common in some instances in the attorney population. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Let's hit these things kind of like one by one and see how many we can get through. The first one that you kind of note and which popped out to me was linear thinking and how lawyers do that. And I mean, I'm a former lawyer, but I think I do a lot of that too, honestly. So what does that mean and how do lawyers utilize it? And then what can they do instead? Well, lawyers are very structured thinkers because the projects that they work on have a beginning, middle, and an end. If you get a case, you're trying to get somewhere. You're trying to do the discovery. You're trying to either settle the case or get through the trial. If you're doing a deal, you're trying to gather all the documents, negotiate all the agreements, and get the closing done. Those are really good qualities when you're practicing law. But if you're trying to build relationships, relationships are not linear. And again, you need to be very relational if you want to generate referrals. People generate referrals. People get their referrals from other professionals who they know, like, and trust. That doesn't happen by going from point A to point B to point C. Right. So that's a referral marketing thing. I got it. Okay. Now, now closely aligned to that is this notion of analytical thinking. And lawyers do this all the time. But also, that can be bad for business, too. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So analysis paralysis is something that a lot of lawyers fall into. And we are very analytical in our thinking and our communication styles, but people don't want to know what the analysis is. I have a client who right now he's getting some feedback from some of the people he works with, he's in-house, that they don't want to know what the statutes are. They don't want to know what the regulations are. They just want to know what to do. So it's impacting (laughs) what people think of, of his ability to represent the company. I see this all the time. Like a lot of lawyers will write something up because, you know, I work with a bunch of lawyers like you. Sometimes I hire lawyers for stuff that I need. And I'm always like, oh my God, there's like so much information in here. <laughs> like, can you just summarize it for me? Like, we need cliff notes for this. So I think that probably plays a part into this as well. Like, lawyers want to cover the bases of everything, and everybody else just wants an overview. Is that fair to say? Or Yes. And again, relationships are not built on, you know, on analysis. People have feelings. People have emotions. And if you focus too much on the analytics you may be missing how people are reacting to things. 
what people want to hear about. You're not communicating in a way that people can listen. Yeah, what I think is interesting is it sounds like you're kind of talking about like both client relationships and also those kind of semi-business, semi-personal relationships that lead to referrals. Both of those things could be affected by changing the way that lawyers think. And I would add to that, once you move into a leadership role, a lot of times lawyers go from being individual contributors to either chairing a department, being a managing partner, or they go in-house and maybe they become general counsel and they've never really had to manage anyone. And the communication skills that you need to do those things effectively are very different than being an individual contributor. I mean, you know, lawyers are risk averse, lawyers are skeptical, lawyers really value their autonomy, they have a high sense of urgency. And, you know, if somebody's really upset with the way a matter is going, they don't want to be sort of pushed up against the wall. Like, come on, get me the documents, get me the documents. (laughs) Right. The autonomy thing is interesting. Like, so you find that lawyers who like their own autonomy and then move to a managerial role, that's a big challenge for them. It's a challenge for them because the people that they're managing have a high sense of autonomy. I, I mean, there was a... Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. So there was a book that was written years ago. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the author, uh, a good management guru who's worked with lots of professional services firms. And he calls it first among equals. And his argument is basically that lawyers who are trying to be managing partners, they are leading with influence, not with authority. Like you can't really tell right. a lawyer what to do. <laughs> Another lawyer. Yes. (laughs) So that is interesting because that brings about something else you talked about in your article. And I think this is like a really big deal for lawyers. Like this is true of probably every lawyer I've met is like lawyers are there to like solve problems for people and have the answer for everything. So they always have to put up this front that they're the smartest person in the room. That's absolutely a lawyer thing. (laughs) And obviously, as you talked about, that doesn't play well into business management or setting up interpersonal relationships. So like, how do lawyers get over that? Because I think that's really hard for them. It is really hard because lawyers are being paid a lot of money. And it's not just that we like to think of ourselves as the smartest person in the room, because quite honestly, sometimes we are, at least academically. Right. But we are being paid high hourly rates. So we want our clients to think we know what we're talking about. So sometimes we think that talking is what's going to impress the clients. But really, what's going to impress the clients is being a great listener and asking questions and asking, and what else, and what else, and finding out really not what the presenting problem is, but what the underlying problem is. So mm-hmm. it's said in medicine, you know, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And it's the same thing in, in the law. So lawyers are not always such great listeners, but being a great listener, I would argue, makes you a great lawyer, and it certainly makes you much better at relationship building, which again, I go back to, will help you build your practice, will help you advance your career, and will help you be much more effective as a manager or a leader. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like lawyers and other people, not just lawyers, like people need to feel like they got to fill up the air in a room and just keep talking. And I think it's a really difficult skill to develop to just sit back and listen to people. One of the other things you alluded to before is that lawyers are skeptics, which I think like, as I'm sure you do as well, that like, that's part of the job, right? You need to uncover the risks. You need to prove things. Like everything the lawyer does in many cases is based on like case precedent that has been done before. So like how do lawyers get out of that skeptical line of thinking to improve their marketing, their business management? What does that look like? 
So I just want to underscore the fact that you're being paid to be skeptical, to not take on face value <laughs> right. what, what yes. the opposing counsel is saying. <laughs> That's really important. Yes. But skepticism is a reciprocal quality. So if you're skeptical with me, I'm going to be skeptical with you. And a lot of relationships are based on trust. And if you're skeptical with somebody, that's going to impact their ability to trust you. So a referral partner or an accountant is not going to trust you as much if you're always questioning what they're saying. For sure. And like, I think it's interesting that like when you're coaching people, because you consult with attorneys, you coach them up and talk about these things, presumably, like, do you find they're doing that to you too? Like, are they skeptical of you at the start of the relationship as the relationship goes on? And do you find it hard getting them out of that shell when they talk to you also? Well, they are when we start, but not when I'm done with them. <laughs> well done. Hey, I set you up for that one. Okay. I think we can hit maybe a few more concepts, which I'm also interested in. One of which you also referenced before was there's this urgency thing. And obviously, like, I don't think this is just true of attorneys. This is also true of like pretty much everybody at this point, every business person, like everybody's got urgency addiction. They want to do the thing that they're doing next as quickly as they can. You get a notification on your phone, you got to look at it. And that's not a lawyer problem, but it affects lawyers as well. So how do you get lawyers to get over the hump on that and change their attitude? I get lawyers to make change in general by getting them to focus on what is it that they're trying to accomplish? What's the goal in the future? You don't change behavior by scolding people. Associates, especially larger law firms, are not going to be happy if everything that they get from a partner is considered urgent. Like at some point, they're just going to get burned out. So when I talk to the partners, well, you know, you have some turnover going on. Do you want to retain your talent? Because if you tell your associates that everything that you put in front of them has to be done by tomorrow, and it's not really true, they're going to get really tired of that and they're going to up and leave. So that that's the way to get people to focus on making change. Like what's the outcome that you want in the future? Yeah. And there's some emotional intelligence involved in that as well. Like it's not just saying that like, okay, like we're not going to have everything be due like in 10 hours, but also understanding how to manage your people and what their feelings are about this. Does that make sense? That tracks. It absolutely makes sense. But you know, again, I have to keep going back to the fact that there are things in the law there are matters that are urgent. In fact, the stakes can be very high. You know, you don't file a brief by a deadline, you could blow a statute of limitations. Right, for sure. So part of this is also like figuring out what's actually urgent versus what's not really urgent. Do you assist lawyers with that as well? Like how do, how do people make that happen? Because I think for most lawyers, like they're trained that every legal issue is an urgent issue that they have to deal with immediately. So again, having them focus on what is it they wanna do. If they really want to accomplish a lot, it's important to kind of triage what needs to be done because if you're bouncing from A to B to C to D to E, you're not gonna be effective at anything. So it's a question of time management. It's also a question of getting people to sort of pick away at the things that are not urgent, but important. So Stephen Covey talks about that. You've got things that are urgent, important, urgent, not important, and then the other quadrants as well. And getting people, getting my clients to focus on things that are important, like relationship building so they can eventually get referrals from, from their referral partners, that's important stuff. So getting that on the calendar so that they're doing it several times a month and not just sort of waiting till their desk is clear. Those are things, because then it does become urgent. Like they're trying to make partner and right. they, don't, they, don't right. have a, they don't have a book of business. 
Yeah, and it, it is a tough balance for sure. So you talked about this a little bit before in terms of how lawyers are skeptical, but this whole risk aversion thing that they have, like lawyer, lawyers are trained to spot risk, calculate risk, and then not just in terms of like business relationships, but in terms of running a business, like you have to have a little bit of a higher risk tolerance than a lawyer would to do that effectively. And that's a mindset shift for a lot of lawyers as well, right? Absolutely. If, if, if businesses were run the way lawyers think, nothing would ever get created or done. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the greatest inventions in the world were, you know, like look at Amazon. That's not exactly an invention, but, you know, it was, not, it was losing money for two decades, I think. So just having the vision of, of, okay, well, this is a risk that we could tolerate because we're capturing more and more and more and more market share. And by the way, our web services are going to make us a lot of money. Yeah. So now Amazon is one of the most profitable businesses in the world. But it took somebody that was willing to take on that risk to be able to get there. And then you need lawyers to manage the contracts that helps the business run in a way that they weren't taking excessive risk. Right. And there's probably a, a middle ground for lawyers where they can be not so risk averse as they are right now, but take on a little bit more risk and maybe have more success in business if they're willing to experiment. I want to hit one last thing with you, which is this notion of attorneys as salespeople. Like, I think we've even talked about this before, maybe on this show, maybe as many as 10 years ago, but the same problem still seems to exist, which is that like lawyers don't view themselves as salespeople, which is kind of detrimental to them getting business. Absolutely. So that's a matter of career identity, personal yeah. identity. We didn't go to law school to become salespeople. We would have gone to business school. But what I get my clients thinking about is that the lawyers that tend to be happiest in private practice are the lawyers that have their own clients. Secondly, actually selling legal services is not like being a used car salesman. It does take time. It does right. take time to cultivate you know, leads. It does take time to, by investing in relationships, to get the referrals that you want. So you don't have to be a high pressure salesperson. In fact, that's probably ineffective. If you could find out ways to be helpful to people over time, you can build a practice. I think that's an important point. Like there are professional salespeople out there, but lawyers wouldn't necessarily view themselves as like professional salespeople or even have a notion that there's like such a thing as a professional salesperson. So that's part of this too, right? Lawyers kind of think it's unprofessional to sell, right? Yeah, it's, it's dirty. I don't yeah. want somebody to think that I'm, you know, selling, I, I keep going back to the used cars, but that's sort of like the quintessential, you know, vision of what we don't want to be. We're intellectual. We studied law. We're above that. But we're only above that if we have clients. <laughs> right. Steve, thank you. This is a fun 15 minutes. And everybody will have more with Steve and the rump roast momentarily. So we'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about what our sponsor companies and their latest service offerings can do for your law firm. Then stay tuned for that rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. 
Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to the rear end of the legal toolkit, everybody. That's right. It's the rump roast. It's a grab bag of short-form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. Steve, welcome back. How are you? As I said earlier in the show, I'm a little nervous, but I'm excited to have made it to the rump roast. You did it. We're here. Okay. Last time we talked, you may not remember this, but the legal toolkit never forgets. I asked you for some James Taylor deep cuts because we're both big James Taylor fans. And you were like, oh, Fire and Rain and Country Road. And I was like, wait a second. Those were huge hits. <laughs> now, I think you just misheard my question, but I'm deciding to build a segment out of this. So welcome to Deep Cuts with Steve Seckler. So let me tell you how it works. We're going to ask you some trivia questions, which I know you really enjoy, about really obscure songs and albums. <laughs> I hope these Steve. are yes. I hope these are yes or no questions. <laughs> Steve has his palm on his forehead, and we'll give you some multiple choice to help you out along the way. Are you ready? Oh, if it's multiple choice, I'm in. You got this. Okay. What is the best selling record album of all time? The Eagles, their greatest hits, 1971 to 1975. Michael Jackson, Thriller, or the Eagles again, Hotel. California. And just so you know, these are the top three biggest selling albums of all time. Who you got? Thriller. Yes, correct. Correct. I would have said the Eagles' greatest hits because I thought that was the greatest selling album previously, but it is actually Thriller. 51.2 million records sold. Pretty impressive. Very. So as you can see, like we went with obscure albums, but we were messing around a little bit with that. These are actually really popular things. <laughs> okay, next one. You're doing great so far, one for one. Who is the most popular artist on Spotify? Is it Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, or The Weeknd? And those are also top three. Oh, it's definitely Taylor Swift. I would have thought that as well, but it is not. <laughs> Ed, Ed Sheeran? It's The Weeknd. It's The Weeknd. What? Yes. <laughs> I want to recount. I was surprised to hear this as well. I thought it was like going to be Taylor Swift, like far and away. The weekend's got 95.57 million streams. Taylor Swift has 81.03 million, and Ed Sheeran has 81.48 million. So, surprise, surprise. All right, let's keep going. We'll do three more quick questions. Without Googling it, how long is Stairway to Heaven? Seven minutes and 55 seconds, seven minutes and 41 seconds. Or seven minutes and 59 seconds. And I did not know this. <laughs> oh, come on. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got a 33% chance. 755, 741, 759. Well, you always try to answer with the middle answer. I mean, that's, you know, that's the, the standard way to answer any multiple choice question. So yes. I'll go right. with the middle one. 
And that's why I made it the first choice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's actually 755, which I did not know. I would have guessed in the sixes, honestly. All right. We're doing good here. I feel like two more. What Beatles song spent the most weeks at number one on the U.S. Billboard charts? Hey Jude, I Want to Hold Your Hand, or Can't Buy Me Love. And those, by the way, are also the top three. Can't Buy Me Love. That's a good guess. However, that is the lowest of the three. That was at number one for five weeks. I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one for seven weeks, knocked out by another Beatles song, interesting enough. I think she loves you. And Hey Jude, number one for nine weeks. Pretty crazy. All right, last one. You're going to like this one. I think you know this one off the top of your head, so just let me know. James Taylor only had one number one hit in his entire career, which is shocking to me. What was it? Sweet Baby James. It is You've Got a Friend from Mudside Slim and the Blue Horizon in 1971. He only had like three or four top five hits, too. So, Steve, you survived the rump roast. This was fun. How do you feel? I'm sweating profusely. <laughs> Good. But I do too. really but I do really appreciate being invited back, even if I had to suffer through the rump roast. Oh, this was fine. I was saying I was sweating profusely, but that's because I haven't put the air conditioning in yet. In any event, thanks for coming on, Steve. We'll have you back again for time number four. Everybody be ready for that. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jared. If you want to find out more about Steve Seckler and Seckler Attorney Coaching, visit Seckler.com. That's S-E-K-L-E-R.com. Steve Seckler, Seckler.com. Now, for those of you listening in Weeweeantic, Massachusetts, which is a real place, this may not come as a surprise to you, but we've got a Spotify playlist curated by the one and only Steve Seckler called Deep Cuts with Steve Seckler. Check it out and get your B-side on. Now, sadly, I've run out of time today to talk about how I'm trying to convert my entire wardrobe into just Snuggies and Crocs, but I suppose we can talk about that later, if and only if it doesn't interrupt my midday nap. This is Jared Greer reminding you that children can be assholes too. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.